Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 33 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. We have Mike Volkoff from the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance. Today, we take a look at the, the Michael Cohen guilty plea and the Paul Manafort guilty verdict. Today, Mike Volkoff talks to us about how prosecutors build cases with witness flipping, and Matt Kelly considers Trump's diatribes on same and what it might mean for corporate whistleblowing going forward. Everything Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of Everything Compliance. We have the full A-team with us today, Mike Volkoff founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and as always from across the pond, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Cordery Compliance from London. Gentlemen, welcome. Howdy. Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, everybody. So we're recording this on the last uh, day of unofficial summer, August 31. So as you might guess in Houston, that hint of fall is in the air. It was only 83 this morning. Um, We've got a heck of a lot to talk about. We are inspired for this episode by our colleague, Mr. Armstrong. Uh, So with that, let's just hop right into it and let's start with Mike Volkoff. Mike, um, we had uh, the Michael Cohen guilty plea a couple of weeks ago and uh, as our criminal defense Specialist, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could talk about how prosecutors build cases in witness flipping. And then from the Manafort trial, uh, I know you've also prosecuted cases. How do you use documents to tell a credible story when your prime prosecution witness is a slime ball like Rick Gates? Well, that's uh, those are two great topics. Uh, first off, I, I thought it was uh, a great week for uh, justice, for the rule of law. And I think that what it shows, and just as a good reminder to everyone, uh, is that as you ponder the Russia investigation and the related investigations, remember it takes time. And once the time is used and they're using it very well and very efficiently, um, we're going to see results like this. And I think it's going to get a a lot more interesting uh, as time goes on, because I think uh, they're sort of going after now uh, the top ring. And I think they're going to go after the top ring of people. Uh, who may be exposed in this. So let's talk first about the Cohen deal. What's interesting about the Cohen deal uh, to me is, uh, number one, is there is no cooperation, at least a cooperation requirement that's explicitly included in the plea agreement. Um, And the fact is that it may be the result of the fact that it was a quickly negotiated deal, meaning that at least from press reports and statements, um, the Southern District of New York wanted, you know, wanted to get sort of further along in their investigation to know what their evidence showed uh, before they cut a deal or even started, it sounds like, even debriefing Cohen fully. And what I have a, a feeling is that there's a lot that has not been 
he's not been asked about with regard to the what Mueller is going to be interested in. So I, the sense I have is there either was an understanding that uh, cooperation will be uh, dealt with after he's fully debriefed by Mueller and they see what he can do in terms of that case. But it is pretty extraordinary to have a guy just walk in and plead to eight counts. Um, I think the fact is his critical lawyer in this is not Lanny Davis. Uh, Lanny Davis's reputation is really not too good. And Lanny Davis has already gotten Cohen into trouble by making various comments that apparently weren't necessarily accurate about what Cohen knows about prior about uh, Trump's knowledge prior to the Russia Tower meeting or the Trump Tower meeting. Um, so. Anyways, I think that this uh, there's a lot more that's going to happen with Cohen. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, stay tuned. Uh, but I think the key lawyer is his Southern District of New York former supervisor, uh, Guy Cirillo, who, if you watch the uh, videotape of him going into the FBI building, he's the tall, skinny guy with white hair who uh, is the one who clearly knows how to deal with the Southern District. They trust him. And so there's some other uh, deal going on here. Uh, you know, Cohen, everybody says he's going to go to jail for four to five years under the plea agreement. Well, that's he's going to try for better. Trust me. Um, and uh, he's going to try to get it down to probation. And the only way he's going to get that is if he comes in with some uh, really interesting information. Going then to the, the Manafort verdict, um, a couple things. One is it was interesting. There was one holdout who held out on the 10 other counts. Um, but uh, the Manafort trial proved once again one of my theories, and I've always felt this way. I've handled cooperating witnesses. Uh, you never make a case on a single witness, a single cooperating witness, because it gives the defense enough to argue about, and they don't get a feel. The jury never gets a feel for multiple cooperating witnesses where you have, let's say, three or four people with deals. Uh, Gates was clearly a, scum, a scumbag, but you, it's a great argument to get up there and say, hey, look, he may be a scumbag, but he worked with the, the defendant here day after day. So, you know, the inference being, well, what do you think Manafort's like? Um, the other thing is, uh, in a, I think we also saw a reflection of Virginia juries. Virginia juries are far different than D.C. juries, trust me, from experience. Uh, and the D.C. jury is not going to have any problem with convicting Manafort. Uh, all you need is a, a rich, uh, uh, insensitive, greedy, um, you know, high-powered uh, white male, and uh, he's toast. And the things that gets the D.C. juries upset is when they see pictures of people spending a lot of money on frivolous items. Um, and they all work hard. These are middle class. You know, a lot of a lot of the jurors are middle class who work really hard and are really, uh, you know, good, good people. And they get very upset when they see people just cheating the system and spending money like that. Um, so we used to put drug dealers away with pictures of their, you know, uh, their $3,000 shirt and it would drive them nuts, uh, the jury. So, um, but the more important 
thing coming out of Manafort is that they're not going to retry him on the 10 counts because under the sentencing guidelines, there's really no benefit. Now, you notice they did put in a motion to continue, I think, the hearing uh, to go back before Judge Ellis and discuss um, and discuss the, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the 10 counts that there was a hung jury on. Um, there's they're just going to use that as a threat more or less um, for plea negotiations. Now the rumor about the plea negotiations with Manafort to me, all that really matters is whether or not the plea negotiations included cooperation. I don't think the government's going to give him much of a deal unless he includes cooperation. Uh, And that's why, and it'll break down over that. So I still think he's going to flip, to be honest with you may take the second uh, second one, uh, the second trial to do it, but uh, he's going to get convicted on the second trial, uh, and we'll see. Now, in terms of the documents versus a cooperating witness, uh, you know, the, the, the whole rule is you've got to corroborate anything that the cooperating witness says, and the argument has to be, look, uh, he said that, but he's corroborated by other witnesses or he's corroborated by documents and documents. You sort of lead with your documents when you have a document case like this. And it was a pretty tight uh, document case from, you know, what I was able to read about. And I, I even, you know, went through some of the exhibits. So they had a great case. Um, there were a couple, I think the judge made it hard for them. Uh, I also didn't like, uh, I mean, this is just my, the old prosecutor in me, like if I could never watch somebody try a case because I would always say I would do it differently. Uh, I think the closing argument, the government didn't do that good a job because uh, Greg Andrus was given two hours and he took an hour and 40 minutes and didn't get through his entire PowerPoint presentation. You don't do that. Um, he should have cut it shorter and saved more time for the rebuttal to respond to the um, to the defense arguments. You win your closing argument in rebuttal. That's where you actually get in front of the jury, look them square in the eye, and use all the credibility you have. Uh, so I, I I didn't feel like it was a great trial effort. Uh, it was not at the top by the government. Uh, and Greg is a great guy, really smart, but he doesn't have a lot of trial experience. And by that, I mean, you know, close to 30, 40 federal trials. So, um, uh, but that's sort of my, my feel for this, but I think we've got a lot more interesting things to happen. Uh, I think Cohen is going to be in the end, I think he's going to be a pretty good witness. Um, and I think the tape that he already provided, I mean, look, the president already lied in the interview he had on Fox when he said, yeah, I found out about this afterwards. Well, that's not true. You're on tape finding out about it before. So, I mean, whoever is counseling Trump, and I don't think there are many people who are, um, it just was terrible for him to say something like that right after that, knowing that the tape is out there. I mean, what is wrong with the, the guy? And the tape got so much press and everything. I, you know, the more, tr- uh, the more Trump talks, the better, the more he tweets, the better for the, for the prosecutors. Because, um, I did have an interesting conversation with, uh, and this is sort of inside information. There are a bunch of witnesses who they, the, the Mueller planned to put in the grand jury. 
And now uh, those witnesses, these were about statements that Trump had made to various people in the White House contemporaneous with firing or leading up to the firing of Mueller. I mean, uh, firing of Comey. Uh, that's a Freudian slip. Let's hope uh, we don't have to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But um, but the interesting thing is apparently uh, Mueller's group has decided that they don't need to put these witnesses in the grand jury because the president has admitted everything that they were going to say. So, I mean, they have them in tweets, they have them in comments. And so, you know, Hope Hicks is still going to go in or went in because she had a lot of information. But people related to Hope Hicks and people who are around the president, some of them, I mean, they've been debriefed, they've, they've been interviewed uh, for hours, but the, and they were told you probably have to go in the grand jury. But now they're being told, no, we don't need you to go in the grand jury. And the lawyers found out it was because they, they have all these admissions by Trump, which is great. So anyways, the, uh, so that's that's sort of the my perspective. I think the Russia investigation you know, is going to be on hold for a few months, but they're going to keep working. And uh, there's a lot more to come. Uh, I think Stone is going to get uh, in, uh, indicted. And I think Donald Jr. is going to have issues. And, you know, we'll see what goes on from there. I, I think um, this is Jonathan, Mike. I think it's fascinating stuff. And, and kudos to you, because I think you called it several episodes uh, ago as to how this would pan out from from our perspective that i think the nearest thing in terms of interest in the uk in u.s legal process i'd have to say was the oj simpson trial i I can remember that would have been 95 i could remember having a series of matters before the same judge in the same court at that time and I think when we were waiting for the case to start one time, the judge had talked about the OJ trial. And then every time I was in his court, we would have the case. And then he'd say, uh, you know, the, some words like the parties are excused. The court has business with Mr. Armstrong. And he'd kick everybody out of court. And then we'd chat about the OJ Simpson trial for about 30 minutes and as a relatively junior lawyer, you know, that was an opportunity you took <laughs> to, to have that sort of conversation with a judge because you, then you knew, you knew much more about, uh, about him going forward. And I think it's the nearest equivalent here. It's, it, it, it is, um, it's better than all of the soap operas I think we have currently. And it'll be fascinating to see how it pans out still, I think. Well, I think it's going to be more interesting than Iran-Contra because uh, Congress is never going to hold hearings that will threaten the, uh, you know, threaten the criminal prosecution. Uh, whereas uh, Congress held the hearings in Iran-Contra that screwed up and gave immunity to North and Poindexter. So that's one thing. And second, uh, uh, secondly, I just have to veer off for one quick second, Jonathan. I was in uh, in your country and uh, actually near where you live in, in the summertime, yeah. and uh, and and I was at a couple of uh, I was at a tavern, you know, just seeing what they sell, not drinking it. But um, and I was at a tavern, and basically, I apologized to at least three couples uh, for you know our president. And, uh, you know, they took the apology very well. They wanted it. But then they apologized to us for Brexit. And I said, you know what? I would take Brexit in a minute 
in exchange for you guys taking Trump. And they said, oh, no, 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 we didn't mean it that way. Okay. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, but I thought it was really what was interesting was the the I mean they I felt like uh, there were a lot of people there who felt our pain in a lot of respects and it was pretty interesting. So, from your perspective over there, yeah, no, um, absolutely. I think it is um, something that's gripping us. And yeah, Brexit. It's the only shimmer of light I think in the Brexit malaise. Yeah. Um, so any, anyways, any, anything else? Yeah, uh, Mike, this is Jay. Uh, can you just speak for a couple of moments on the noose tightening around the president and the immunity that was offered to Alan Wieselberg and David Pecker and how that affects things going forward? Yeah, I, um, I'm, I actually, and I hate to, to downplay that. I don't think those are actually big developments. Because what I think happened is, at least this is the way, if I were representing them, I would have played it. I would say, what do you, I would, I would represent them and say, okay, prosecutors, what is it that you want to know? Well, we want to know about how these transactions were handled with regard to, uh, you know, the payments to Stormy and to the other one. And, uh, and then I would have said, well, you know, my guy's got a fifth on that. He's really worried about it. He's worried about what you guys are doing here. Okay, what about if we give him, uh, you know, immunity uh, for this part of the, the transaction, you know, for information about that? So we would then proffer, you know, they'd interview him uh, based upon a targeted sort of focus and then go from there. Uh, and so I think the immunity really only covered the things that they needed for the indictment, which would have been the, related to the transactions. Uh, same with Pecker. Um, now, the, the only upside to dealing with them that way is that you've established a relationship with them and you may be able to come back to them, but they're not going to volunteer stuff. It's more or less that you're, if you discover something else, you call up their lawyer, say, look, now we want to talk to them about this. Well, can our immunity deal cover that? Yes, it can. So I don't think that they went in there and fully debriefed Weisselberg about all the criminal activities that have occurred at, uh, uh, you know, at least at this point. It may be, though, that if they develop more money laundering evidence uh, related to the Russians and buying of all the properties, Weisselberg clearly knows that. And um, if they can build independently a case where Weisselberg may get in trouble, I think they're going to do that. Uh, so right now, they're not like fully immunized, giving everything over. But that doesn't mean that it can't happen down the road. Um, one, other, one other point I think um, that's important about all of this, and I hate the criticism that, you know, people keep saying, well, this isn't about Russia. Uh, you know, people are pleading guilty and it's not about Russia. It's not about this. It's not about that. That's exactly how these cases are made. And Tom, you asked about that is what you when you're made the way mob cases were made is you go and you find anything you can as leverage 
to give you leverage over a person and you charge them just like they did with Manafort, just like they did with other people. And the reason is you, you obviously are building a case and you're trying to get people to cooperate. And the only way they're going to do that is if you uh, look through their history and find information that gives you leverage over them. So the argument that these cases would have never been brought except for the Russia uh, investigation, while true, it's a common practice that's been going on for years. In other words, everybody who pleads in, an, in, a, in a RICO case that I used to do, sometimes it would be an old case and we'd resuscitate it and put it together and like a drug case on somebody and say, okay, now we're going to charge your guy. And then he says, well, I'll cooperate. So that's, this is nothing new. This is the way it's always been done. And then my favorite argument that they used was, well, uh, the president hasn't been charged with anything. But of course, we believe that he can't be indicted. So, you know, it's like everybody knows that the, the Mueller is saying he can't indict the president. So, uh, you know, the fact that they're saying, well, the president wasn't charged with anything. If anything, by the way, if you read the information, they have a very, uh, the Southern District is good, and they have a very strong case with documents and multiple witnesses that ties Trump to both of these uh, payments. And uh, I was struck by how many cooperating witnesses they had and the documents and the financial transactions that they nailed down into every one of these. Now you know what those guys were doing in New York over the last few months is dragging in every one of these people and they got every financial detail down on how this money went to Stormy, how it went to Karen McDougal, everything. So, uh, I mean, kudos to them. They did a terrific job with it. And uh, it, it actually, it shows you that good, what good prosecutors can really do. And uh, it was pretty, it was a great information to read. I mean, it just showed really solid work. Anyways, that's, that's all I got. But, you know, hold on to your hats is what I say. So Mike, I have an inside baseball question for you. Yeah. Uh, what, um, the judge was very hard on the prosecutors. My question is really twofold. One, uh, can a judge be so hard on one side that it actually backfires and the jury um, either becomes upset with the judge or takes the side who's being picked on so much? And two, if a judge is extraordinarily hard, does that make it more difficult to overturn on appeal because the judge... Uh, frankly, was, was so strident in his rulings and comments from the defense. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I think that the, the judge, it can play both ways. I've seen it play both ways. I've had uh, judges give me a hard time and, I could, uh, and I've seen it hurt me in front of the jury. Uh, but on the other hand, I've seen a few times where, you know, the judge was hard on me and the defense was kind of obnoxious. And so then they, they feel for you. Um, but I think the defense counsel did a pretty good job from what I could hear in terms of not being obnoxious uh, and laying low and letting the judge do their dirty work. Um, although I did think their closing argument in, uh, in violation of an agreement that they had with the government was pretty outrageous. And the judge tried to cure it with an instruction, but that was really pretty unfair. But um, I think it does also, this is an airtight case for appeal. Um, and the other issue to me uh, about that is 
it was interesting that Manafort's attorney, when he came out, didn't say, we're sorry, but, you know, we're saddened by the verdict. We're disappointed by it. And we plan to fight and appeal, uh, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court if necessary. Well, what sounded to me was he came out and he said, "Okay, that was a fair trial. We thank the judge for giving us a fair trial. And he said, and Mr. Manafort is considering his options. Well, that to me said something. There's more going on here um, in terms of it's not the usual defense counsel language. Um, And, I, you know, I think I've always felt that Downing and his crew wanted to get the money out of this case. And that was one of the big things that was driving uh, the defense. He left his firm. So he, this was all that he was doing. So he can't just plead the guy out. He's got to take him to trial and get all the money he can from Manafort. And uh, not to be cynical about lawyers, but I think that they're about, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that he's getting as much money as he wants for the second trial, or that he realizes that at some point he's got to bring him in to get him out of spending the rest of his life in jail. I do think that Ellis will not give uh, will not give Manafort, you know, a really harsh sentence. Uh, I think he would get like four years at most. Um, and I think, uh, whereas the, the whereas I think in D.C. once uh, he gets convicted there, I think that judge will give him uh, much more than four years. That's sort of my take on where we are. It's going to be interesting, though, because uh, to see where uh, Downing and Manafort's counsel are, I mean, he could clearly cooperate, but I think he, uh, to be honest with you, I think he fears for his life more than than anything. But, you know, we've had... And we've had cases. We've had cases, though, where people have feared for their life before. Trust me. So, on that note, Matt Kelly, uh, Matt, one of the interesting things uh, that came out from both the Cohen guilty plea and the Manafort verdict uh, was that Trump attacked Cohen for being a rat and praised Manafort for keeping his mouth shut. Uh, I wondered uh, if we might take that to a little bit different context not really in the uh, mafia prosecutions or criminal defense contact, uh, context, mm-hmm. but um, we've had the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, begin the rulemaking comment process around corporate whistleblowing. Do you see this in any way as um, foreshadowing what the Securities and Exchange Commission leadership might do around whistleblowing? And also, how do you see something like a uh, guilty plea in a criminal uh, proceeding uh, helping or driving civil litigation? I'm specifically thinking of the uh, Stormy Daniels civil lawsuit uh, and how a Cohen guilty plea might impact that. Yeah, Tom, thank you. So it's has been interesting because um, I look at what the president has been doing as, and uh, you and I have talked about this before, a gigantic example for corporate compliance officers of how not to have your organization work. Um, specifically around whistleblowing, it was interesting. I was looking up some of the things that President Trump had said about Michael Cohen after Michael Cohen copped his plea, and uh, he had called Cohen a rat. And I thought, well, geez, didn't he also call Cohen a lowlife? And I went and I looked it up. I am wrong. He didn't call Cohen a lowlife. He called Omarosa a lowlife. And I don't recall who else he has badmouthed as all of these things have been happening. But it actually gets to what I think is a worthwhile point to remember is that 
attempts to stifle whistleblowing don't work because clearly he has been calling bad names to just about everybody he can find and we still have this administration leaking like uh, you know my old oil tank on my 78 Colt um, it's just it it fails and it really gets to I think some good lessons worth remembering about strong corporate culture if there was no misconduct here President Trump would not be running around calling people rats and lowlifes and everything else. He'd turn to Manafort and say, knock yourself out, pal. I don't care. i got a country to run. And he'd waltz on off. And that is not what is happening. So clearly he is thinking in this very instinctive, knee-jerk way, I'm going to try and stifle every whistleblower I can. Um, this is something that I kind of touched on in a different uh, post I made on a blog about speaking up around harassment and um you know we always talk about a speak up culture and that's what we want to foster i think we all would do well to remember donald trump specifically that there's always speaking going on in corporate cultures about misconduct it's just not necessarily speaking up people speak around they speak sideways they speak downward they speak um out of the organization to the media, to prosecutors. They might speak around with a whisper campaign, don't go work for that department manager. He or she is unethical for some reason. They might speak downward or outward to new hires, don't come here, we have issues. Um, there's always speaking. And what you're trying to do is to cultivate a speak up culture so that the right complaints, legitimate complaints, get raised to the right places in an organization where they're empowered to do something. Um, that's what an ethical CEO is supposed to achieve. The antithesis of that, the counter example, you want to make sure whatever you do, you do not this, is what's going on with President Trump and this investigation. Um, you know, specific to the SEC's whistleblower reforms, you know, as I said back when they proposed them earlier this year, Compliance officers should be thinking first and foremost, how do we foster a protective culture for whistleblowers so that they feel comfortable speaking upward to the right people and not downward or sideways or anything else? Um, so to that extent, a lot of what the SEC is proposing to do with its rewards program, I think, makes sense. Um, spreading around and increasing the ability to win larger small awards uh, is good because most misconduct that people find is relatively small in nature. Um, clarifying that if you already have um, your that your whistleblowing tip has led to a DPA or an NPA that still qualifies as a resolution that leaves you eligible, that's good. You know, people know this. They can see that they're still protected. Um, and even the expedited procedures to tell people who are not protected you aren't protected. It's good for them to know that. Uh, and some portion of whistleblower tips are from people who are wearing tinfoil hats and receiving alien communications through their TV. You know, we do need an expedited way to get rid of those quacks and um, other frivolous cases that get them out of the system. The only thing I don't like about the SEC whistleblower rewards are the way that they're proposing to cap large awards at $30 million. That is a solution in search of a problem. I think also it is in search of uh, support from the legislative statute, which I don't think that the Dodd-Frank law allows the SEC to do this. And I suspect that part at least will be challenged in court when the SEC tries to ram this through later on the fall. Um, 
But, you know, it's, it's just, it is really interesting to see that, you know, President Trump honestly believes stifling whistleblowers works. And it can work to some degree to help with some objectives a company or an executive might have to protect itself, but it never works well. You wind up with other issues. Um, that's all I have to say really about the whistleblowers. But I did also think that, you know, one person who I am sure is very aware of Michael Cohen's plea deal is Michael Avenatti, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels, who almost immediately said he assumes that since Michael Cohen has now admitted to committing uh, a crime in furtherance of this payoff with Stormy Daniels, that his civil lawsuit against the president can proceed. And he is planning to depose the president and he's planning to videotape the president. And that video is going to be put out for all to see. That's what Avenatti wants to do. Um, it seems to me, and if anybody can parse things out differently, please do, because I want to make sure I have this right. But other than the underlying civil complaint, this looks like from a procedural standpoint, a lot like what happened with Paula Jones and Bill Clinton in the 1990s, where he had to be deposed for a civil lawsuit for misconduct that happened before he was president. And that deposition was videotaped and it was put out for everyone to see. And it was not good for Bill Clinton. I think it will be a hundred times worse for Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm hard pressed to see how he could now get out of that because the Supreme court has already said, yes, a civil lawsuit like that can proceed. This looks a lot like that. And again, it just shows when you have one type of misconduct, it, it tends to proliferate into other problems and reproduce. And here we are with civil litigation. I mean, does anyone really think Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal are the only ones out there? Does anyone really think there aren't other civil lawsuits that could be filed against this president now? Um, and what about the state New York attorney general uh, and his, or I'm sorry, her now, uh, her exploration of corruption at the Trump organization? All of this is going to factor into it. Um, it is just some really powerful lessons about once you get this infection of misconduct, it tends to spread and it's really difficult to get rid of it and shouting it down. I have never been able to shout down an infection myself. I don't think that's going to work with President Trump. And I mean, those are the lessons for compliance officers that I can see. Yeah, I, I've, I've won. Matt, um, one thing that I don't think has played very well here is it uh, is I, I'm paraphrasing Cohen's lawyers plea for money it sounded you know there were elements of telethon in some of the uh, interviews he's given here and I think that played particularly badly you know please for money to fund lawyers to maintain Cohen's defense uh, on the same day as uh, pleas for money for the uh, Indian flood victims and pushing them out of the news agenda to plea for money for Cohen. Uh, you know, from a journalist perspective, how how does that play? How, how um, reluctant are you to carry um, pleas like that? And is it likely that that would have been a condition of interviewing the lawyer that that he was allowed to include that telethon type appeal for cash um so in full disclosure i have not seen that particular plea for money uh which 
on one hand, I'm kind of wondering, really, because you had a taxi medallion empire worth millions and millions. I know that. On the other hand, I suspect at some point uh, Michael Cohen's wife will maybe revisit their marital commitments and might want to take him to the cleaners in a divorce proceedings. It's like these things come into play. Uh, as a journalist, though, no, that's really like – it's not cool. I would not agree to that as a condition. I would tell the source, I'm not going to let you do that. And then I would fully expect the source to try and do it anyways, once you're actually, say, live on TV or something like that. It would kind of depend on the mechanics. Is this a video interview? Is this a live interview? Is this a written interview where I can just cut that reference out? Um, but you know, uh, there seems to be a vast array of dirty pool that is being played here by multiple people and this long cast of characters. So I'm I'm not surprised that he would do something like that. I can't imagine it's really going to work, but uh, like it's the best show in town. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got north of twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> I don't know how far that's going to take him given his legal troubles, but more power to him. You know, actually, the only other kind of mind bending thing I would put out there, this is more like a, a quick political take, but I want everybody to get their heads around this. Let's say the Democrats retake the House in November, very possible. They investigate Donald Trump in 2019 up to their eyeballs, very possible. They recommend articles of impeachment by late 2019 early 2020, we could see the spectacle of a president going through impeachment while running for re-election at the same uh, time. Stew on that. Yeah. And quick update, I've just checked $165,940. Uh, well, that'll, that'll get him like maybe three days as opposed to one day's defense, but... <laughs> You know, Jonathan, we're coming up to the Labor Day holiday here in the States, and there used to be a telethon that was hosted by Jerry Lewis. So, you know, maybe as part of the Everything Compliance um, podcast every couple of weeks, you could be the MC and give us an update on how the <laughs> GoFundMe is working out for, uh, for, uh, for these people. I'll do my very best. Maybe I'll get a large, uh, a large barometer that... Uh, Tom can put it on the site as well. <laughs> hey, uh, Matt, this is Mike. I, I have one quick question for you. What is it that has animated the SEC to revisit the whistleblower problem, program? What has been the alleged problem that well, they're supposed to be addressing? You know, I, I can certainly see that there is uh, a need for a lot of what they're proposing. Um, I think some of that comes from the uh, Digital Reality Trust whistleblower decision by the Supreme Court earlier this year, where they said that to win whistleblower protections under Dodd-Frank, you must first report to the SEC. Now, the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower, Jane Norberg, she has said since that decision, they have seen an appreciable increase in the number of complaints coming into them. So some of it was more procedural housekeeping to make it crystal clear to everybody. What does a submission actually mean? You know, there's a form you have to fill out. It's not that hard, but you know, you have to do that. You can't just leave a voicemail at the SEC and say, oh, I'm protected. And now you go and raise hell at your company. It's a little bit more than that. Um, I think the idea of increasing the size of smaller awards is good. Um, because theoretically the reward could be as small as a hundred thousand dollars, but 
those small awards now could be larger. Um, they're trying to tinker with those rules. The point where I say, why are we doing this, is where is the rationale to cap a large award at $30 million? I get it that large awards may not be a company's idea of a good time, but um, you know the the critics, and there are critics, the Democrats already on the commission have said that would maybe lead to some sort of selective whistleblower rewarding for very egregious conduct. It is fair to say that CFO of a large company who is reporting major misconduct, he's really putting his career on the line and would probably want a larger award. Um, but you know, remember back during the Obama administration, Republicans used to tie up the SEC in knots saying you didn't do a cost benefit analysis as thorough as you should. Why are we doing this? How does this help? I think now the shoe was on the other foot. Where is the crisis in large whistleblower awards that would be resolved by making them smaller? Um, how is that going to help or hurt anybody? It doesn't make a difference to the taxpayers because they don't pay these awards. Um, but I think that you are going to see a legal challenge. And also Commissioner Kara Stein, when she was the, one of the Democrats on the commission, she had mentioned when they were proposing these rules, this language doesn't look like it's in the statute. I'm not sure we can do this. That, to me, is waving a red flag to all of the, uh, I don't know, the Democratic critics out there to say, challenge these rules in court once they're adopted. Because, like, what is the harm in having a large award for large misconduct? I don't, I don't see it. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was suspicious when I saw this beginning, but, um, you know, I feel a little bit comfortable, a little bit comforted by your uh, response. And frankly, Congress needs to fix the statute, but that'll never happen after the exactly. digital ruling, you know? Yeah. So. And now on to the rants. Mike, you got a rant for us today? Yeah, and uh, um, this is not so controversial, but it really just uh, bothered me. I thought the, um, the, the, the death of uh, Senator McCain and the uh, services that have been held, and I don't know if anybody saw the speech uh, given uh, by uh, former Vice President Biden, but it just reminded me about, um, you know, honoring uh, the service of John McCain and uh, sort of the, the absence of any class in the response from the White House. And um, it just reminded me, though, that uh, we still do have classy people and we still do have honorable people uh, in, this, in our leadership. Uh, and hopefully um, this was just a really disappointing time to see the, the way the White House responded to the death of somebody who you may not have agreed with them all the time, but nobody could disagree he was a hero uh, and that he was an honorable person in many, many, many respects. So anyways, I was really uh, struck by that. And my rant is, you know, look, uh, I, I sort of see the tide turning that people are getting tired of uh, sort of this, you know, classless act and uh, want to see a return to normalcy. Matt Kelly. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to step away from politics for my rant and complain about Bird. That is the online scooter rental company that has been trying to sweep the nation. It is basically like um, a self-rental 
of electric motorized scooters, and uh, their big shtick is that these scooters, you can leave them anywhere when they come into your town. Uh, you can leave them on the street. There is no particular docking station. You use an app to uh, locate a scooter by GPS, and then you can ride it a mile or so to whatever appointment you might have across town. Um, cheaper than Uber, uh, better than maybe the bus if it does not work, and more cost-effective than driving. Great sales pitch, right? Well, here's my complaint is that Bird has taken to um, invading these communities uh, without really asking the community in advance that, you know, do you have any concerns about us doing this? And this is near and dear to my heart because one of the very first places Bird decided to approach in the United States was Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live. And early in August, suddenly we started seeing these scooters all over the place. And uh, it led to this miniature wave of outrage because Bird has no particular plan for um, what about liability if a Bird rider hits a pedestrian. These scooters can go 15 to 17 miles an hour. That is like getting hit full force by somebody running at the speed of Usain Bolt. I would prefer not to do that. Um, what about if they are just littering things, uh, littering up the sidewalks? Or can they be on the sidewalks? Should they be in the street? If they should be in the street, do they need turn signals and brake lights? And these are all questions that cities have, that states have. Bird does not have any answers. Um, it is especially near and dear to my heart because Bird has basically said this is a new piece of technology and we should be embracing it. Well, I stepped out of my house one day and I saw a bird scooter on the sidewalk in front of my neighbor's house. Now, it was just there, lying around. When I see an object that looks abandoned on the street, I do not think it is new technology. I consider it trash and I threw it into the gutter. Um, the mayor of Cambridge uh, actually dispatched DPW crews to drive around town and seize the bird scooters. So uh, this lasted for about a week. And then uh, Bird graciously said that they would take back all of the scooters, including the ones that were in the city impound lot. But um, you can't do this. You can't just waltz in to a city. And I'll give an even more useful, I think, uh, not cute political point is there was a bike sharing service that was funded by Chinese investors that came into a city just to the south of Boston and Cambridge. Another one where you put the scooters wherever they are or put the bicycles wherever they are. And then the investors pulled the plug. And now we have all these bicycles all over the city of Quincy, Massachusetts. And the mayor of Quincy stood up and said, why is it my taxpayer's problem to clean up the mess of a couple of bad business executives uh, based over in China? Well, how, why are we supposed to foot this bill? Um, so there are, uh, there's a lot of this these days. The regulations, I mean, I'll rant about the regulators too. We have got no regulations to figure out how we're supposed to do this. So it's a really cool sounding idea right up until the regulators aren't keeping pace with technology and the tech companies couldn't care less about the regulation and seeking permission rather or seeking forgiveness rather than permission. Not a good way to start a relationship and not a good sign of your ethical culture, in my opinion. So um, that's my rant about bird. Jay Rosen. So uh, just like Mike Volkov, uh, I've been transfixed with the way that uh, America and Americans are saying goodbye to Senator John McCain. And uh, 
it looks like he's put a lot of thought into these ceremonies. He's had a while to plan his departure. And from the plurality of speakers, Larry Fitzgerald, Joe Biden, and, you know, having Scottish bagpipers. And my parting uh, vision is as the uh, coffin was leaving the um, church yesterday that they started playing Frank Sinatra's My Way. And um, McCain's always been known as a maverick. And you might think that playing My Way could be interpreted as being selfish. But I think his way is the American way. And as Mike was saying, there's a way of service and country and working together and having respect and having toleration. So I, too, am chaired by uh, the fact that there are more Americans who appreciated Senator McCain's service. And without mentioning the name of those people who are classless and don't appreciate, uh, I'm glad that the country has had these uh, next few days to remember Senator uh, McCain's contributions and to also look forward to, as Mike said, that the tide is turning. Mr. Armstrong. Well, I, um, I've been thinking of something that uh, Roy Snell gave voice to in his uh, Twitter feed this week. And my words, not Roy's, but almost the curse of the enthusiastic amateur. Now, for full disclosure, I tried to teach myself to paddleboard this summer just by using YouTube tutorials. And... Um, it seems to me that there are these days quite a lot of people trying to learn compliance the same way. And I think it's more dangerous than, um, you know, the risk of me falling into the water and making a fool of myself. And we've had one example of that in the last couple of weeks in the UK. Now, I'm not going to give the names to uh, protect the innocent whilst they, uh, if, whilst they have a chance to defend themselves. But a while ago, I was asked to be the keynote speaker at a GDPR conference. And, and I don't say keynote, it's, it's relevant. I don't say that to boast. And about four speakers after me was a guy who got up and spoke about uh, something different than the topic he was given. And some of his talk was wrong. And it was quite embarrassing because I was still at the conference and he would keep looking to me and say, as Jonathan will confirm, and nodding. And occasionally I had to say, well, not strictly true or as a slight upgrade. You know, I was, I was genuinely trying to be polite about it. Then I was quite surprised to see something from this individual on social media saying that he was the keynote speaker at this particular conference. Surprised because... I think I was billed as that and he wasn't. And then the plot thickens in that this particular individual then announced that he was writing a book. And the book appeared with a foreword by our data protection regulator saying that this guy had been at the forefront front of data protection advocacy for many years. Now, one individual who was, I was mildly suspicious, but one individual who uh, was quite upset, has made various FOI requests, et cetera, et cetera, and established that this particular individual uh, was involved in marketing until about 
a year or 18 months ago when he decided that GDPR and compliance were profitable things to do. And uh, he went on the lecture tour, published uh, the book, uh, and um, secured a foreword from the uh, regulator. Now, unfortunately, things have started crashing down a little. It seems that the regulator doesn't wish to share details about the evidence that she had to endorse the book. The publishers are investigating complaints that entire sections of the book, I understand, were cut and pasted from other publications. And the book and reference to it have been removed whilst this investigation continues. Now, for the interests of fairness, of course, this investigation might uh, might work out that this individual is absolutely a, a peer of the community and that the allegations against him are unfounded. But it seems to me this illustrates what Roy was saying in his tweets, really, about the dangers of taking people at face value. Often we see in the compliance community people who pop up from nowhere uh, a little bit like whack-a-mole, stick their head above and tell us that they're the expert in something. And sometimes we just stand back and ponder, and maybe it's time that, like this particular guy has who got a bee in his bonnet and made FOI requests, maybe every now and then we've got to hit the mole on the head and call it out, because otherwise other moles spring up and we're going to be taken over by the enthusiastic amateurs, who in this case at least seem possibly to have done real harm. So I'm reminded of the uh, maxim that how do you determine if someone's an FCPA expert? You ask them if they can spell FCPA. Um, yeah. I, uh, actually, I, I want to join for a shout out uh, today. And my shout out is to Mary Shelley. Uh, yesterday was National Frankenstein Day. Uh, 2018 is the 200th anniversary of the publication of the first modern science fiction novel. Uh, and I want to uh, give a shout out to Mary Shelley, who at the age of 18 wrote uh, the novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Uh, she dreamed it up at uh, Lake Geneva in Switzerland. And it has become uh, certainly a, a classic novel, uh, classic movies, and uh, the forerunner of all modern science fiction. So here's to you, Mary Shelley. Gentlemen, as always, it's been a great episode, and I look forward to uh, continuing. Thank you all. Pleasure. Thanks for setting it up as ever, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. I hope you'll join us again next week where we catch up with Jay Rosen and Jonathan Armstrong and their thoughts on the Cohen guilty plea and the Manafort guilty verdict. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.